Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. The answer is absolutely in line with your broader thesis around intentionality. When we pay attention to time as our critical resource, that leads us to be more thoughtful, more deliberate in how we spend it, spending in ways that are closer and more aligned with our values. So we become more deliberate with how we spend our time. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 234 of Passion Struck. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Or you would just like to introduce this to a friend or family member. We now have episode starter packs, both on Spotify and on the Passion Struck website. And these are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And I don't know about you, but 2022 has gone by in just a flash. And I can't believe that we are already at the end of the year. And earlier in the week, I did an episode that featured some of my favorite interviews that I did with people like Daniel Pink, Gretchen Rubin, Susan Kane, Admiral Stavridis, and many, many others. So go check that episode out if you haven't had an opportunity. And over the course of the year, we had a number of just amazing accolades that I wanted to share with you, including hitting number one on the iTunes chart for alternative health, number eight on the iTunes chart for health and fitness. Interview Valet recognized us as the fourth best podcast for conversation and the third best for mindset. And lastly, Feedspot named us as one of the 50 most inspirational podcasts of the year. Thank you all so much for the support that you have shown the show throughout the year and for trusting me to bring you quality content every week that helps inspire you to lead an intentional life. There is growing interest in the intersection of neuroscience, behavioral science, and alternative health. By studying these fields together, we can better understand the various factors that influence our behavior and well-being and develop more effective approaches to promoting health and reducing suffering. Today's episode unites a world-class interdisciplinary team of academic and healthcare experts to advance the science, research, and practice of intentional behavioral change, including Katie Milkman, Don Moore, Cassie Holmes, Max Bazerman, Eilat Fishback, Jonah Berger, Sarah Mednick, David Vago, Jordan Feingold, Scott Barry Kaufman, Kara Fitzgerald, Dominic D'Agostino, Cynthia Lee, and Chris Palmer. By integrating their insights from these fields, we may be able to develop more comprehensive and effective strategies for improving health and quality of life. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. Dr. Katie Melkman is a behavioral economist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and she brought a unique perspective to the podcast this year by sharing her scientific principles and research on the subject of how people change. During our interview, I pointed out to Katie that her research indicates that regardless of your age, we are all capable 
of behavioral change. But I asked her why it is people get this mindset that they can't change or that someone else in their life can't change. Well, first of all, I should say change is hard. There's a, it's not as though uh, there's some magic wand we can wave and just instantly be a different person. And so I think there's a good reason that we have this, I'll call it a prejudice towards thinking we're not going to be able to change because it isn't easy. But I think the ways in which we can change are also different than often people recognize. There's a few things. One, there's wonderful research by Dan Gilbert, who's a psychologist at Harvard, showing that we think we will change far less than we do over any time span. You know, our forecast is like we will be more stable as humans than we are. And that's a misappreciation of the way that our social circumstances evolve, our preferences evolve, you know, our taste in music changes over decade time periods. All of these things just happen naturally. I think that same bias may be part of what's making us think it won't be possible to change because we don't recognize that, that the world is constantly swirling around feeding us new inputs, new social experiences, new beliefs, new understandings, and that it does take us on more of a journey than we appreciate. But second is when we put our mind to it and say, I want to change, there are a set of tools we can use that will help us achieve those goals deliberately if we want to. Now, not everyone will want to, and you might think, oh, I've met this person and could they be a long-term life partner? I don't know. Maybe they can never change. Well, the answer is if they don't want to change and they aren't interested in being deliberate about using these tools, well, you can't force them to. It's more that we have the agency to change ourselves when we choose to, if we use the best principles and it's going to be work and it's going to take time and it probably will have setbacks. Um, but the evidence is that, you know, when we set the right kinds of goals, when we use the right strategies, there is an opportunity. Dr. David Vago is a neuroscientist and associate professor at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Vago's work focuses on understanding the neuromechanisms underlying mindfulness and its effects on brain behavior. His research has also highlighted the potential benefits of mindfulness and meditation for various health conditions, including depression, chronic pain, and addiction. He has explored the use of mindfulness-based interventions in clinical settings, such as in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Overall, Dr. Vago's work has contributed to the growing body of evidence supporting the use of mindfulness and meditation as effective tools for promoting mental and physical health. And during our interview, I asked him why his whole Holiness, the Dalai Lama, has taken such a unique interest in his work and the personal challenge that the Dalai Lama gave him. Thanks for going there. I um, feel very motivated by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and his efforts to make people um, realize how important compassion is. Compassion and bringing people into this non-dual state of awareness, which is we can dissolve the boundaries between ourselves and others. And you see this so often with human dynamics in the workplace or in a professional setting. People are always competitive with each other. It's just sort of naturally set up that way in society that we compete, especially in the academic world. There's always competition. And you're always competing for grants and such. But the goal here is that we're all going to work together to improve humanity. And how do we do that? He's always been an inspiration for me. And um, because as a meditation practitioner, of course, He's one of the um, great teachers of the Tibetan Vajrayana path. So I've had the opportunity to meet with him a bunch of times through my work with the Mind and Life Institute. But there was a specific time where I got to present my work to him 
with a number of emerging leaders in the field of contemplative science and mindfulness research and meditation research. And he said basically that he looked at us and there was sort of a changing of the guard. There's some people who did some of this work in the 70s and they're sort of moving in towards the retirement phase maybe, or just starting to look for legacy, leaving their legacy with newer generation of of scientists who focus on meditation and mindsets and doing the rigorous work that needs to be done for the future. And he says, now you and your generation, he was talking to six of us um, that were in his presence, you and your generation have the responsibility to build a happy, peaceful world. It's hard for me to even say that, knowing that right now, Ukraine is being invaded at this point, and there's a possibility for people to die in the context of war. But millions of people want a peaceful world. Um, They're just lacking the knowledge of how to do so, right? There's just these structures embedded in our world and our society to compete with each other. But so few individuals show interest in actually doing the work. And he was telling us month by month, year by year, you will gain awareness about these things, how to bring more conviction to others' minds with evidence to convince others. And he said, he will watch us and whether we are... uh, really helping to build a happy, peaceful world or not. Uh, And then he was um, joking and he's a good joker. He says, I'll be, I'll watch from either hell or heaven. Uh, If from hell, there's not much I can do, but if you do the wrong things, I'll come as a demon with horns and hunt you down. (laughs) But he really was just being playful and saying that you should constantly check your own motivation. Uh, So I have been continually motivated no matter which way I go, whether I stay in the academic path or work with others um, in the for-profit sector or in the context of this new society that we're building, I really am just trying to use my neuroscience skills and my own meditation practice to help inform people about the science, the rigor of, uh, in which we can say meditation can have a truly lasting impact and help humanity in a positive way. Um, and that's really uh, the, the gist of it. It's really just a form of motivation for, for me. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. Dr. Cassie Holmes is a professor of marketing and behavioral decision-making at the UCLA Anderson School of Management and author of the best-selling book, Happier Hour. In her work, Dr. Holmes provides how to think about and spend time to live a more joyful life. And during our interview, we discussed that a healthy chunk of our happiness is determined by our intentional thoughts and behaviors. What this means is that our happiness is significantly influenced by what we think and do. And I asked Cassie, why do those who place more intentional focus on their time rather than money report more positivity in their lives and more satisfaction in their lives? And the answer is absolutely in line with your broader thesis around intentionality. When we pay attention to time as our critical resource, that leads us to be more thoughtful, more deliberate in how we spend it. Spending in ways that are closer and more aligned with our values. So we become more deliberate with how we spend our time. Touching back to some of my very early research where I was looking at the effect of focusing on time versus money. What I found was simply those who are chronically more focused on time versus money or value their time very highly are happier. <laughs> and that is controlling for how much time they have, which you can measure by age, you can measure by how many hours they work per week. It's also controlling for how much money they have, which you can measure by income level. And what it's picking up on is that those who value time are happier because they are more deliberate in how they invest it. Now going to the quote that you read, it's like, okay, so we need to be deliberate Happiness is a choice. So yes, there are inputs into our happiness that we don't have control over. So our inherited disposition has a big effect actually on our happiness. So were you born as sort of naturally half glass, half full type person, or are you sort of more of a natural grump? And this is the effects of our inherited disposition are quite large. And then there's those circumstances. So things that are in our life that we don't have control over, like income level, like a level of attractiveness, marital status. Yes, you can decide to get married, but these are sort of circumstantial factors that you don't have sort of daily influence over. Those are things that actually have a significantly smaller effect than people think. Because so, so many individuals think that if only I had a ton of money, if only I was super gorgeous, if only I had like that huge fancy house, then I will be happier. The research shows that, yes, sometimes those have an initial effect, but that effect is much smaller than we think. And I actually spend the first sort of two classes in my course, I'm trying to sort of remaking that point that these things that we think are the sort of secrets to happiness have less of an influence than we think. And then the part that I am really interested in is that part that we do have control over that sort of remaining variance <laughs> in our happiness. And that is how we think and how we behave. And that's where the science comes in, because Yes, it's about intentionality, but even if I want to be intentional, there's still the question of like, okay, well then what should I be doing? And there is 
work that can inform how should we be spending our time. There is time tracking research that tracks individuals over the course of their day, what are they doing and how do they feel while doing it. And so that we can look at on average, what are those activities that tend to be associated with higher levels of happiness? What are those activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion? You see that the activities that on average are associated with the sort of contribute to the greatest amount of happiness are social connection. So spending time with family and friends, those activities that tend to, <laughs> on average, are associated with the least amount of happiness are commuting, work, and housework. So getting to work, getting home from work, work itself, and doing work when you get home. But notably, that research is based off of averages. And so an exercise that I have my students do and I walk through in great detail in Happier Hour is so helpful because and it's basically having you tracking your own time. So over the course of a couple of weeks, writing down every half hour, what are you doing? But most importantly, how happy are you on a scale of one to 10? Like overall positivity. So not just like, is it sort of pleasurable and fun, but how, how positive overall, how satisfying, how meaningful, so that you have your own personal data set and can identify, okay, what are those activities that are, for me, are the most happy? What are those activities that are the least happy? So you don't have to chunk all of work together because there's going to be some work activities that are more positive, some work activities that are more negative. There are going to be some social activities that are more positive. There are going to be some social activities that are more negative. And so you can pull out what are actually the features underlying those activities that can inform, given that our happiness is also a choice of how we spend our time is it can inform those activities that we spend our time on. Dr. Jonah Berger is a professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and a repeat New York Times bestselling author. He's known for his research on consumer behavior, word of mouth communication, and the psychological factors that drive social transmission. Dr. Berger's book, The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind, is based on his research on the science of persuasion and the factors that influence whether or not people are willing to change their beliefs and behaviors. The book explores the ways in which people are influenced by their social connections and the messages that they receive from others and offers practical strategies for effectively communicating with and persuading others. And in our interview, I asked Jonah, how do you get people to overcome the inertia to change their minds. Yeah, I think it's even worth taking a step back of why I wrote this book in the first place. As you noted, I have written a couple books before and I'd been doing sort of speaking and consulting around contagious and around invisible influence. And I was using some tools with clients that I found interesting and useful. And I started realizing that not all those tools were in the books that I had written so far. And I started knowing some commonalities between different things. And I wondered, similarly to you, could there be a better way to create change? Think about it. Everyone at the core has something they want to change. Employees want to change their boss's mind. The marketers or salespeople want to change the consumer's mind. Leaders may want to transform organizations. Nonprofits and the folks that work in them want to change the world. Startups want to change industries. Everyone. Some people say, I just want to change my spouse's mind. I just want to change my kid's behavior. Everyone at the core has something they want to change. But as you've noted, it often doesn't work. Right? Often we push, we pressure, we cajole, and nothing happens. And so the question I started to ask myself is, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds 
and drive action, not by pushing, but by doing something else. And I found there's very much an, an interesting analogy to be made in chemistry. So in chemistry, obviously change is really hard. Think about diamond being squeezed together out of carbon over eons of time. Think about plant matter being turned into oil over millions and millions of years. Chemists obviously can't wait that long. So in the lab, they often add temperature and pressure. They heat things up, they squeeze them together. And you can make an analogy to the social world, right? When we create change, we similarly we put energy into the system, right? We think if we just push people a little harder, they'll change. That's kind of why we think that. Uh, if there's a chair, for example, in the middle of a room and we want to get it to move, well, pushing is a great way to, to move that chair. And so we apply the same intuition to people. We think if I give more facts, more figures, more reasons, more information, they'll change. But if we think about it, the last time we tried to change someone's mind or someone tried to change us, we're different than chairs. Right? Force in a particular direction doesn't make us move. It often makes us resist. And so what does create that change? And so going back to chemistry in the lab, chemists often add a special set of substances to make change happen faster and easier. These substances don't heat things up. They don't increase the pressure. They allow change to happen with less energy, not more. And these substances, as you can probably guess already, are called catalysts. And then what's most interesting about these is the way they create change. They don't squeeze things together, they don't heat them up, they don't add more energy to the system. They mitigate and remove the barriers to change. They identify ways to make change happen with less energy, not more. And I think the same analogy can be made to the social world. If you look at those great change agents, those catalysts in whatever organization or business you may work for or know of, they often they don't just say, well, what could I do to get someone to change? Instead, they take a subtly but importantly different approach. They say, well, why hasn't that person changed already? What's stopping them? What are the barriers or obstacles that are getting in the way? And how by removing those barriers, can I make change more likely? And it's a subtle shift, but a really important one. Often as change agents, we know a lot about the outcome we want to achieve, the thing we want to happen. We often know a lot less about the people, organizations that we're trying to change. But the more we understand them, the more we understand the barriers that are preventing them from changing, the more effective we can be. Dr. Eilert Fishback is a professor of behavioral science and marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She's known for her research on motivation, self-regulation, as well as decision-making. Professor Fishback's research has been widely cited and has contributed to a wide variety of fields, including psychology, marketing, and business. In our interview, we discussed her new book, Get It Done, and I asked her, why is it so hard for us to choose our personal objectives? And what is the difference between do versus do not goals. Two questions there. Uh, one reason it's uh, hard to uh, choose our objectives is that uh, we often plan for our future self and we have this policy where we think that our future self is going to be much more of a superhuman than our present self, which means that uh, when we plan for the future, we uh, envision the person that doesn't get tired or hungry or frustrated or, or bored. And uh, that person, uh, of course, will get up at 6 a.m. and work until uh, midnight. Well, not really. And so it's often hard to uh, plan because our plans uh, suffer from what we refer to as the empathy gap, as lack of empathy for our uh, future self. Uh, your second question about do versus uh, do not uh, goals. Well, it's better to set do goals because they are more likely to be exciting 
do goals are more likely to be intrinsically uh, motivating. They are uh, not a chore, okay? Do not goals, uh, don't eat that, don't smoke that, don't talk to that person, uh, don't engage in that activity. That, these are goals that seem less exciting, more like a chore. One problem with these goals is they tend to bring to mind exactly the thing that you are not allowed to do. So you, you think I, I should not talk to my ex and how do you know that you are not talking to your ex? Well, you ask yourself, am I? And by that, you bring to mind the thought that you were trying to uh, uh, get out of your mind. You ask yourself, you know, uh, have I eaten uh, whatever red meat? And you bring to mind the fact that you are tempted by that food. Uh, another reason is that do not goals tend to elicit psychological reactance. And I maybe will throw another concept in psychology here, but psychological reactance is when you become the rebel that you were when you were a kid. You want to do something exactly because your parents or teacher told you not to. You want to eat the thing that you told yourself that you should not eat exactly because you told yourself that you should not eat that. And and that's not good for the goal and for your uh, success. One advantage of avoidance goals is that they tend to seem urgent. If you think that you should not do something, you probably think that you should not do it right now. But the stamina is less uh, when it's not a good predictor of what you're going to do in the long run. Dr. Max Spazerman and Dr. Don Moore were known for their work in the fields of decision-making, behavioral economics, and behavioral ethics. Professor Max Spazerman is the Jesse Isidore Strauss Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. He is known for his research on decision-making, negotiation, and conflict resolution. Some of his key contributions include the concept of bounded ethicality, which highlights the ways that individuals' ethical judgment can be influenced by the contexts in which decisions are made. Professor Don Moore is the Lorraine Tyson Mitchell Chair in Leadership and Communication at Berkeley Haas and serves as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. He is known for his research on judgment and decision-making, particularly in the areas of risk and uncertainty. During our interview, we discussed their brand new book, Decision Leadership, and I asked them why, as the way we work changes drastically, will it have a profound change on how we make decisions and the role of organizations as decision factories. Yeah. So thanks for that, John. In the book, we talk about organizations as decision factories. And as more of the effortful labor gets delegated to automated systems, the decisions of the humans in the loop becomes more and more important. In an organization that's a decision factory where its outcomes, its successes, the welfare of the people inside and the people affected by the organization's operations, all of those depend on the effectiveness of the decisions of the people inside. And so our book focuses on what leaders can do to enhance the effectiveness of those decisions, to empower people to behave in ways more consistent with their own ethical values, where they're considering the broader impacts of their choices and the choices of those around them, as far as the impacts beyond the, the small set of insiders to the larger world, the natural environment, and future generations. What we get in life is driven first and foremost, by the quality of our decisions. And that holds true for especially for leaders who are in a position to influence the quality of the decisions of those around them. 
So I'm struck, John, by the fact that people listening to this podcast are doing so online, almost by definition. And so much of what we do happens online. And anybody who creates a new organization that operates primarily online creates a platform. And when they create a platform, whether they think about it or not, they're creating a decision architecture that's going to potentially influence all the people who eventually end up on that platform. So they are creating the decision architecture. They are leading by what they do in terms of the structure of that, by the design of that platform. A story, you mentioned my work with uh, Mike Luca, and we wrote this book, The Power of Experiments. And Don and I certainly built off of that. We're big fans of the use of experiments in our book, Decision Leadership. But one, one story that really belongs to Mike Luca, even though it's in a book that has my name on it, and Don and I refer to it, is this story about Airbnb. And the founders of Airbnb created a platform that wanted to create more connectivity between guests and hosts. So they featured people's photos because people like to know who the person they're interacting with is. And a photo is one means of doing it. But what the leaders didn't think about is how people might use that information in unfortunate ways. And sort of years after the platforms created, a group of Harvard researchers, including Mike Luca and Ben Edelman and Dan Seversky, come along and they find out that a small but significant portion of hosts are pretty racist and don't take Black guests. And all of a sudden, the leaders of Airbnb become aware of the fact that sort of a choice that they made for perfectly well-intentioned reasons had the perverse effect of allowing hosts to be racist. And this is something that they could have avoided with very, very different decisions. And what we want all leaders to do, whether they're thinking about how to set up the cafeteria to lead people to healthier choices, or whether they want to sort of be more responsive on the DEI front, how we set up our organizations, including platforms, is going to have a dramatic effect on the decisions of others. And we want people thinking about the decisions of others as they go about making those design decisions. I mean, every platform designer worries about this in some form or other. You can set up your website to make it easy for customers to find what they're looking for and to buy your products, or you can, through bad design, make that very difficult for customers where they're confused, uncertain how to proceed with the transaction, and they'll just wind up drifting away and leaving your website without actually successfully consummating the transaction. That's a trivial example, but it has analogies to many more consequences sequential decisions, including those that, that Max highlights. And, and I love trivial decisions because I think that we want leaders to think about the millions of trivial decisions that they're affecting because cumulatively they matter a great deal. Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman is a cognitive psychologist, author, and host of the Psychology Podcast. Scott is a professor at Columbia University and director for the Center of Human Potential. He is interested in using his research to help 
all kinds of minds live a creative, fulfilling, and self-actualized life. Dr. Jordan Feingold is a physician, researcher, author, teacher, and well-being expert who applied positive psychology in understanding how to implement the empirical science of well-being into how you prevent and treat burnout and mental illness. Jordan and Scott co-authored the book, Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. And during our interview, I asked them, why do we need to constantly choose growth instead of living a life that's on autopilot? This idea of choice is so critical, and it's so critical that it is the title of our book, Choose Growth. And this comes from a quote by Abraham Maslow. I'm just going to read it so I, I don't misquote it. But it's, one can choose to go back toward safety or forward toward growth. Growth must be chosen again and again. Fear must be overcome again and again. And that is where the title of the book comes from. In my own psychiatry training and my training director, one of them, Asher Simon, always tells me we always have a choice. Human beings always have a choice. Everything we do. There are many things that we cannot choose. For example, our genetic makeup. We had no choice. We didn't choose to be alive. We didn't choose the families we were born into. We didn't choose the conditions of our births. There are so many things that we have no control over, yet that can't build an illusion that we are not in control of anything. And one of the, the goals of this book is to help people understand we often have more choices than we actually think we do. And if we fall subject to a victim mentality or think the world is just happening to us, and I know this idea of being a victim is something Scott is incredibly excited about thinking through, and I'll leave that to him. If we choose to see ourselves in that way versus choosing to see ourselves as agentic beings who have a lot more control than we think, we can actually build our autonomy. We can start to bolster our self-esteem. We can move in the directions of life that we want to go. Of course, with some limitations and these choices are not necessarily equitable across society. And we have to recognize the real structural barriers to making choices that are in line with our goals and how we may have to overcome different barriers to do so. But we always have a choice. And this book is really about helping people identify like what is in our control and what is not and how do we really optimize that locus of control and, and live the life that is authentic to us and in line with our values. Wonderful job, Jordan. There's so much nuance there we have with our environments and how it can affect how some choices can be harder to choose the growth option versus others. We're trying to think this through. Sometimes a really big part of the choosing the, choosing the growth option actually is choosing to change your environment. The most simplest example was if you have lots of, if you want to lose weight, don't keep lots of stack all around your apartment. If I have like starbursts everywhere, you know, it's going to be harder for me to choose the growth option when I'm really craving sugar. This uh, idea of choosing growth, it's, we're not trying to say it's just always easy, right? To just choose the growth option, but there are things we can do in our lives to make that option easier for us to choose. Dr. Sarah Mednick is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine. She is known for her research on sleep, memory, as well as the brain. Dr. Mednick is the author of Take a Nap, Change Your Life, which explores the science of napping and its potential benefits for cognitive function and overall well-being. And she is also 
the author of the new book, The Power of the Downstate. Dr. Mednick's research has been widely cited and has contributed to our understanding of the relationship between sleep and brain function. I asked Dr. Mednick to explain what is the power of the downstate and why is it so essential to our well-being? So the downstate is a concept that I developed in my lab based on my own research or my lab's research and a lot of other people's research that really encapsulates all of the restorative processes that we can engage in on a daily basis, both in the daytime and the nighttime to restore and replenish our resources. And it comes with this idea that we are rhythmic animals and plants, bacteria, all animals on the planet are rhythmic, meaning that we have periods of upstates where we're super active and downstates where we need to replenish those resources that get used in the upstate. The downstate comes from a sleep concept that I can also talk about, but it really is sort of a umbrella concept of all of the different restorative processes that we need to engage in. Well, I find this whole concept of the upstate and the downstate truly fascinating. And one of the things I wanted to ask is, why are we only as good in our upstates as we are in our downstates? And I think this has a corollary to Newton's third law of action and reaction. Yes, exactly. Right. When you consider a rhythm, every rhythm has an upstate and downstate, meaning that if you think about a wave, the wave crashing on the beach is a system that first does a internal drawing in of its resources and drawing in of all the energy and pulling into itself back into the ocean before it crashes and has this outward activation. And this is the same as any rhythm, right? That you have this inward drawing in and an outward expression of activity. This is what a rhythm is, is that there's an upstate where the wave is crashing and a downstate where it draws in and it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. We have this same system of ups and downs in every cell in our body. We have these little clocks that are basically looking for a time where it should be active and a time where it should be dormant. And these cells group together. They form processes and organs where a cardiovascular system has an upstate and a downstate. Our metabolism has an upstate where it's at its prime, the resources are primed and ready for eating and a downstate where we should stop eating and give it some time to restore itself and replenish its resources. Our brains also have this upstate and downstate where our frontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that does all this executive function and attention and big thinking, that brain area actually has a period where it's at its most powerful and then it starts to recede and it goes into the downstate where it can replenish itself. So at every level of analysis, you can actually see that these systems have this same kind of idea of activity and repose. And not considering your downstate, not considering these rhythms is a good example of what we do all the time, right? What society is doing, which is emphasizing time in the upstate and not prioritizing time in the downstate. Dr. Dominic D'Agostino is a University of South Florida scientist and researcher who has made significant 
contributions in the fields of nutrition and health. His work is focused on the ketogenic diet, including its effects on various biomarkers or measurable indicators of health. For example, he studied the impact of the ketogenic diet on blood sugar levels, blood pressure, and cholesterol levels, and has found that it can lead to improvements in these biomarkers in people who have certain conditions such as type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome. In our interview, I asked him, how can you hack these biomarkers as a therapeutic tool for a range of medical conditions? Great question. I would preface this by saying that if you want to start on a ketogenic diet to really do your research, not all ketogenic diets are constructed the same way. There's healthy ways to do it and non-healthy ways to do it. And you want to make sure that your kidney function is good, your liver function, things like that. So it is initially a stress to your body because it forces your body to go from burning carbohydrates for fuel to burning fat and ketones for fuel. And this changes our physiologies in ways that are sometimes unpredictable, but the majority of changes that happen rapidly and a very significant majority of changes that happen long-term are very positive. So there's very, very positive changes in cardiometabolic biomarkers that are responsible for our long-term health. And probably most importantly, ketogenic diets can cause rapid weight loss. That's usually a good thing, but people tend to do a yo-yo diet. They go on ketogenic diets and then it go completely off. For the large majority of people just wanting to use the ketogenic diet for weight loss, it is highly effective for that. But more importantly, it's very effective for weight loss maintenance. So a lot of diets will allow you to lose weight. <laughs> it's harder to sustain that weight loss. So you could potentially use a ketogenic diet to get down to your ideal weight and then gradually add some carbohydrates back in, ideally not in the form of sugar or processed carbohydrates or even starch, but add carbohydrates back in, uh, in the form of vegetables and maybe a small amount of fruit. And then you can gradually tweak the diet to maintain that weight loss and to preserve the benefits that are associated with that weight loss. There's different ways to implement the diet and there's healthy ways and there's not healthy ways. So what I would advise to do more of a Mediterranean style modified ketogenic diet, which is essentially a ketogenic diet that's rich in fish, poultry, eggs, red meat, limited red meat to some extent, but has a lot of salad greens and what we would call fibrous vegetables. So vegetables that are mostly non-starchy, so above the ground vegetables, uh, not potatoes, not sweet potatoes or white potatoes or things like that, but basically vegetables that grow above the ground, no grains. And what you'll find is that a host of metabolic parameters will increase and improve over time. And this will typically allow weight loss and sustain weight loss without having to count calories for the large majority of people. And that's pretty important because the whole basis for diets and weight loss has been to count calories and a low carbohydrate diet that doesn't even need to be ketogenic diet, which doesn't even need to be severely carbohydrate restricted, typically changes our appetite regulation in a way that allows us to be more satiated with the food that we're eating. And by virtue of regulating glucose, blood glucose control, we call this glycemic variability, and that can be measured with a continuous glucose monitor. 
without the wild fluctuations in your blood glucose, people realize that they don't have cravings like they do eating a carbohydrate-based diet. And that has significant effects for long-term weight management. Dr. Kara Fitzgerald is a naturopathic physician, author, and expert in functional medicine, reverse bioaging, and authored the new book, Younger You. And during our interview, I asked her about her insights and recommendations on how individuals can reverse their biological age and achieve optimal health and vitality. One of the main themes of Dr. Fitzgerald's work is addressing the root causes of aging, such as inflammation, hormonal imbalances, as well as stress. And in our interview, I asked her about the importance of incorporating lifestyle practices, such as regular exercise, stress management, and healthy nutrition into one's daily routine in order to promote healthy aging and reverse the effects of aging on the body. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is in this country, and we should dissect what you're talking about because it's extremely, extremely important. Education is a piece of it. And I think that we can inspire people, at least I hope that we can inspire people by giving them the facts. I mean, and the facts are in our country, the majority of us will have two significant chronic diseases by the time we're in our early 60s. We will be on multiple medications. Make no mistake that you will, if you're choosing the standard American lifestyle, end up in this position. Your hard-earned dollars, your lifetime commitment to your work, your kids' inheritance will go to this journey. You will spend it. I mean, big pharma will get your money skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, they will inherit what should rightfully go to your kids and be yours in your golden years. That is the trajectory in this country. I mean, it's just the bitter truth. It's ugly. It's so ugly. I don't think we get that. We don't take it in. We spend 16 years of our lives, our final years, really sick and compromised. For me, that raises my, I feel such indignation, such offense at that trajectory that it is motivating. It's motivating because it really pisses me off, frankly. No way do I want to end up in that arena. I do not want to live the standard American life. And it's very motivating for me to do right by my body and to make those daily micro choices. So I think education, really kind of understanding that the standard American life will put you in a skilled nursing facility propped up and taking many medications. And that is where your hard-earned dollars will go. And if we can get enough people on board with that information and really pull the branch down to how you can live a quality life, it needn't be that difficult. So here's the truth. The truth is not pretty in this country. And here's the alternative. It was an extraordinary finding that we were able to show that a simple diet and lifestyle program doesn't need to be out of the reach of any of us was able to reverse biological age. This is broadly adoptable. One of the peer reviewers at the journal we submitted to, the journal Aging, said just that, that this is important information because we can all do it. It's not out of reach, pluripotent stem cells uh, therapy, 50 or $60,000. This is something that you can choose in your local regular grocery store and getting outside perhaps for a walk or whatever form of movement you want to do. It's not rocket science and it's not prohibitive. It needn't be prohibitively expensive to adopt some of these, but yes, we do need to get people engaged. I will add one more thing. And then I want to hear your thoughts. Certainly the community environment helps. I, so this is what I would, two thoughts on that. So in our study, I believe the reasons that it did so well were one, our participants were excited about engaging in a study that looked at 
gene expression that was an epigenetic kind. It was a first of its kind study. So they were jazzed up about the content, but they also worked with our nutrition team. We've got a like an elite ninja nutrition team here in our in our practice. And actually it's a virtual nutrition team. We work with people around the world who are so well-trained in the science and just getting people rolling in however they need to eat. So these nutritionists met with our study participants once a week. And I think that touch point was an essential piece to our success. Our appearance data on our participants is just very, very impressive. Most nutrition studies are kind of lousy and they get criticized for either poor adherence or just using dietary recall forms that people fill out every few months or even longer. So nutrition studies are notoriously flawed. And I think that we changed that by having our nutritionists stay in contact. So that's a little bit of maybe a community But then once we launched the book, we started a Facebook group for the book that has become a massive, really active, lovely, fun community where they post photos of their amazing meals and talk about issues they might be having that they need some brainstorming on. But so I think the community piece and I think regular, consistent support are very essential. Dr. Chris Palmer is a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. In his brand new book titled Brain Energy, he presents the first comprehensive theory of what causes mental illness, integrating decades of clinical neuroscience and metabolic research into a unifying theory that mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. The theory integrates biological, psychological, and social factors and helps us understand the connections between mental health and physical health. And during our interview, I asked Dr. Palmer about why so many psychiatric medicines are causing more harm than good. It's a really important question. And the overarching premise of my book is that mental disorders are actually metabolic disorders of the brain. I do a bit of a deep dive into the science of what that means and how that works at the cellular level. But one of the things that we know about many psychiatric medications is that they actually impair metabolism in that they cause weight gain, they can cause type 2 diabetes, they can cause cardiovascular disease, And at least in the elderly, the FDA recognizes that they can cause premature mortality. So some of our treatments are actually impairing metabolism. And I do a bit of a deep dive into why those medicines might reduce symptoms in the short run. But I raise serious red flags about what those medicines might be doing to people over the long run, that they might actually be keeping people ill or worse yet, they might actually end up causing symptoms or causing new symptoms or causing new disorders. And we know this with a lot of the medications, we usually call them side effects, but with antipsychotic medications, for example, sometimes they can actually cause OCD, a brand new disorder, like out of the blue, as though the person didn't have enough problems already. Now we're giving them a treatment and it's causing another disorder on top of their already existing disorders. And then it can cause neurological problems and metabolic problems and all sorts of problems. And in the book, I raise serious concerns about these treatments. It's not that these treatments should never be used And I want to say for the record, if you're taking any of these medications, please don't stop them on your own. Please don't just go cold turkey from all these meds because that's a disaster and a nightmare. I've seen it a million times. Don't do it. But I do want people to seriously think about 
what impact their treatments are having on their metabolism and looking at the long-term trajectory and trying to assess whether these are might be playing a role in actually you being chronically ill. And then I would want you to work with a professional to try to come up with better treatments and or maybe try to get off these medications in a safe and effective way. Dr. Cynthia Lee is a medical doctor and researcher who is known for her work in the field of autoimmune diseases. She is an advocate for integrative and functional medicine in how we approach treatment the role of environmental and lifestyle factors in the development and management of autoimmune diseases, the use of functional medicine approaches, including nutrition and lifestyle interventions to support immune health and manage autoimmune conditions, and how the practice of Qigong can promote physical and emotional well-being. I asked Dr. Lee about her practice of Qigong and how it has helped her to improve her own health and why she advocates for its use. Yeah, so just really going back to basics, like qi is what basically just think of it as life energy. So as I was talking earlier about our bodies being 99.99% subtle energy, and actually what we call form, what we call solid and matter is actually that, that same subtle energy, but really condensed. And so this is what these wisdom teachers in the Qigong lineage have been teaching and living and knowing through direct experience in their bodies for millennia, but modern science is now being able to sort of explain and corroborate that. But also, and I don't mean that in a in a small way, in a big way, it's a way that anybody, you don't have to be a special student or a disciple or a wisdom teacher or a healer, like it's accessible to anybody because we have the language and the technology to, right, to be able to relate to that in our daily lives. Chi is just, is that energy that, and we can call it life force, we can call it vitality, whatever you want to call that. Then gong means work or effort. Qigong is a very interesting practice because it is effort, but the effort goes into connecting to yourself as your true nature of being an energy body and a conscious energy body, as opposed to effort in doing things. In fact, one of the foundational principles of Qigong is actually based on Taoist teachings of, which is effortless action. A lot of people know that through Aikido. It's like you don't use your energy, you use your opponent's energy. You turn that energy back towards that person. So Wu Wei is really, how do we move with the flow of life, right? How do we move with the flow of life? Now, one of the things in healing is that often we think, at least I did, and when I work with patients, they have very similar ideas, concepts, is that we think of healing as climbing this mountain. And it is, but what we want to do is we want to stay in flow, right? So if we're just climbing, this is a flat line. So flat line in medicine, right? Flat line, if your heart rate, if your heart rhythm flatlines, you have no life. So what we want to do is actually, we want to bring coherence. So we have to actually go down in order to go up. Even if the overall trajectory, if you think of it as up. So oftentimes we don't want to go down now, what's interesting about passion struck is, right, we think of passion as we're passionate about something that we love. The passion, the root of it in Latin is suffering, right? It's to suffer something. So we actually, we go down and just like our bodies, we have to detox. If we're always eating, but we're not eliminating, we're not pooping and peeing, we just become this one big bloated being. We're not healthy. So we have eliminating is letting go. And so with healing, we have to actually also let go. We have to go into the places 
that we might associate with suffering, right? The parts that scare us, the shadows, the traumas in our lives. But because we're gradually building our resilience, we can go stepwise. If you're really at a low, to go into areas or to work with traumas can be really traumatic. You know, we don't have that reserve. So that as we yeah, continue to build resilience, then we have more capacity to go down. We go up and we go down. We go up and we go down. A lot of what the Qigong practice for me has allowed me to do is in my body to understand what it feels like to not be attached. So don't be attached. This is, that's the whole paradox of healing. Don't be attached to the outcome of health or no pain or balance. You just connect to yourself. And the more you do that, the less we're attached to the outcome, the more in flow things happen. And so if we're really in a state of flow, or which is basically Qigong, is that healing happens really quickly. So that's where the radical remission for me happened. That second health crisis, not only did I heal within a few months, but I had a freedom in my body that I had not experienced the first time around. The first time around was still really highly managed. And yeah, but I couldn't get there just by concept. I had to actually experience that in my body. And so for me, Qigong gave me that framework and it's just a practice, it's a method. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which unites a world-class interdisciplinary team of academic and healthcare experts to advance the science, research, and practice of intentional behavior change. Links to today's episode will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you buy any of the books from the guests that we feature here on the show. It helps to support the show and keep it free for our listeners. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles, and we have a new clips channel at passionstruck.com. Clips. Please check them both out and subscribe. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I'm at John R. Miles, both on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to know how I'm able to book amazing guests like the ones we shared today, it's because of my network. Go out there and build yours before you need it. You're about to hear a preview of the Passionstruck podcast interview I did with Dr. Benjamin Hardy, who is an organizational psychologist and is the world's leading expert on the psychology of entrepreneurial leadership and exponential growth. And we discuss his latest books, Be Your Future Self Now and The Gap and the Gain. And so we're actually being driven by our goals. And so then it forces you to ask yourself, what are the things that I've either consciously or unconsciously committed myself to? And what would happen if I changed my perspective and my commitments to the future so that now my whole life is being driven by something else? It's very interesting. And obviously our view of our past can dictate which goals we set. The fee for this show is that you share it with friends or family members when you find something that's useful or interesting. If you know anyone who could use any of the advice that we gave here on the show today, please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give this show is to share it with those that you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.